Adam. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning, church. This morning we are back into our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I would invite you to please stand out of reverence to God's holy and inspired word if you're able this morning as it is read. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his hope, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would be revealing your truth, that your spirit would be drawing us closer to you through this, that we would encounter you this morning through your word. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So yes, after a couple of weeks off, we had a week focused on stewardship, and we had a week focused on uh, Reformation Sunday. Now we are back into our, our study of the book of Hebrews, which we are calling uh, Jesus is Better, So Don't Give Up. And as we dig back into the book of Hebrews, I think it's worth saying there's, there's some new folks and the people I know we're here for the first time. Uh, so to catch us all up to speed, as we are digging into why are we studying Hebrews? I was asking, I had a conversation on Friday morning about this, and there was somebody who was asking me, I was like, why are we studying Hebrews? I said, well, because Adam picked it. Senior pastor chose it. That's, that's why we're doing it. But there's bigger reasons than that. What, what I want us to see as we dig through the book of Hebrews, what I think we should be seeing over and over and over again, is a point that is actually made at the end of the book, towards the end of the book, in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 says, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded... By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Y'all, this is the encouragement, and this is the reminder of the whole book. Keep looking to Jesus. What the NIV says, fix our eyes upon Jesus, laying aside everything else, all the sin, all the entanglements, all the snares, all the weights of this world, put them aside, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and keep running towards him because Jesus is better than anything and everything else we could possibly lay aside to keep our eyes fixed on him. Now, the author of Hebrews is doing this very intentionally. He, he keeps reminding us over and over again to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because Jesus is better. And he gives example after example, point after point, because the author of Hebrews knows my heart, and I think he knows yours. 
And he knows that our hearts are just like Doug in the movie Up. We keep seeing squirrels. And we keep getting distracted. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Squirrel? No, I'm going to fix it. Squirrel? And you keep getting distracted this way and that way. So the book is filled with reason after reason, example after example of how and why Jesus is better than anything you could think of. And this is where we are this morning as we come now to the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to give you a challenge this morning. I want you to think of your hero. We talked about heroes last time. We were at the end of Hebrews chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago. And that theme is kind of carrying through. We talked about Jesus being the hero of our faith, the one who comes in and accomplishes that which we cannot accomplish, the hero that that defeats the dragon, that defeats the enemy that we could not. But now we're going to keep that theme going a little bit more. Uh, Think of your hero. Now, don't get too spiritual on me quite yet. We're just in the beginning of the sermon. So don't say Jesus. Do at the end. But right now, don't say Jesus. Think of your hero uh, in, in, in sports or in music, maybe in your field of, of study, your profession, entertainment. But now think of this. If you look up to this person, who does that person look up to? Or to put it better, who's your hero's hero in that field, in that world? Give you an example. In late April of 2016, there was a supposed interview quote that was making the rounds on social media. And it was where Eric Clapton, one of the greatest guitar players of all time, Eric Clapton was asked that question. He supposedly was asked, What's it like being the greatest guitar player alive? To which he responded, I wouldn't know. You should go ask Prince. Now that's apocryphal, it didn't actually happen. But that quote was going around because, of course, Prince died in April of 2016. But it turns out that Clapton did call Prince's Purple Rain a lifesaver for him, musically speaking. And Clapton actually did say this. He said, at a time when I thought rock and roll was dead, there is someone who was a reincarnation of Little Richard, Jimi Hendrix, and James Brown all in one. And I thought that's exactly what the world needed. Now, I say that not just because I'm a big Eric Clapton fan, and I love his music, and the fact that Eric Clapton, whom I respect so much as a musician, as a guitar player, would say that about another one, well, that's impressive. Y'all, my point in this, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing for us this morning. The author of Hebrews is pointing us to what was in the mind of his audience, in the mind of his readers, the Hebrew Christians, Jewish believers of the first century, is pointing them to whom they would have regarded as the great one, as the one that has no equal. And then he's pointing them beyond that. He's saying, don't just look to the great one. Look to the one that the great one is looking to. Look to the one who accomplished so much more than your hero ever did or ever could. And in this case, of course, the author of Hebrews is going right for the top shelf. The author of Hebrews is talking about Moses. Moses. 
the one who led God's people out of Egypt after 400 years of bondage, the one through whom God brought the plagues upon Egypt, the one who led the Hebrews through the parted Red Sea, the one who went up on Mount Sinai, and as Adam read for us, God dealt with face to face. He spoke mouth to mouth, spoke directly. The one, Moses, who was the one who received the law from God on top of that mountain and brought it back to the people. Y'all, without saying, without Moses, there was no nation of Israel. There was no law. There was no sacrificial priestly Levitical system. There was no nation. There was no kingship. There was nothing. Y'all, as 21st century, I think mostly... Gentile believers, mostly, we probably don't get just how great and important and highly regarded Moses was thought of by the Jewish people. From their first time, from their first entering the promised land in the book of Joshua, all the way up throughout their history to the original audience, the original hearers of this book of Hebrews all of them would have, we don't appreciate how they thought of and how highly they regarded Moses. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is in saying that Jesus is superior to Moses is not to belittle or to minimize Moses, but is to make the point of how great Jesus is. Was Moses great? Certainly. But is Jesus better? Absolutely. Y'all, Moses did many great things, accomplished a lot. But Jesus did all that he was called to do perfectly, completely, eternally. What the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to do is he's encouraging us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on the one that is greater than the greatest that we could possibly imagine. Y'all, in these six verses, we get a greater call. We are pointed to a greater faithfulness. We are given, we are learned of a greater title, and we are given a greater hope. Simply the outline looks something like this. Greater call, a greater faithfulness, a greater title, and a greater hope. So first off, we get this call in verse 1, this greater call. To start, the, the writer of Hebrews isn't, doesn't just launch into, here's what you should do. But we get first off this reminder of our identity, a reminder of who we are. Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Y'all, this is a pattern throughout scripture. That before we're given a command, before we're given an exhortation, we are given first the grounding in our identity because who we are makes all the difference for what we're supposed to do. That is a pattern throughout Scripture. Even in the very Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments don't start with do this, don't do that. The Ten Commandments start with who is God and who are God's people. He is God and, he has brought, and you are His people. He has brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, and it goes through the Ten Commandments. Before I get to what I should do, 
I have to realize and remember who I am and who I am in Christ Jesus. And he gives us these three things, that holy brothers with a heavenly calling. Briefly, holy, set apart, special, belonging to God, claimed by God. Not common, not like the rest of the world, called out, special, belonging to God. Holy. Brothers. Brothers and sisters. With Christ as our oldest brother. Y'all, we belong to the family. We are part of the family of God. And we are not second cousins, twice removed. We are brothers and sisters. Y'all, we are not simply invited to the family reunion picnic. We are invited to Thanksgiving dinner. And we are given a seat at the main table. The significance of brothers. Brothers. And then the heavenly calling. Our heavenly calling flows from this core identity as holy brothers. Set apart, called, belonging to God, brothers and sisters of the family of God. Therefore, we have this heavenly calling, special purpose rooted in that identity. But y'all, maybe this morning, as you read through that that list in verse 1, and as you hear me talk about it, you may be thinking, I don't feel like any of that. I don't feel holy. I don't feel like a younger brother of my older brother, Jesus Christ. I don't feel like I have a heavenly calling. I feel like my life is very uh, mundane and just slogging along through. Y'all, the point of verse 1 is not to encourage you to try and attain those things. The point of verse 1 is not to try and give you a list of aspirational values that if you work hard enough, you just might get to. Maybe if you work hard enough, you will be a holy brother with a heavenly calling. Maybe if you really try, you might get this. That is not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The writer of Hebrews is telling us in verse 1 that you are, are these things. It is not a command list. It's not an aspirational value. It is a reminder of who you are. You, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have been redeemed by his blood, you are holy. You are his. You are his brother and sister. And you have indeed a heavenly calling. Know it. Be reminded of it. Ground yourself on it. This is not a maybe, might be kind of thing. This is a true, for sure thing. Our text is speaking to Christians, to believers, these holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Our calling is is heavenly because it has its origins in heaven, and it is both bringing us to heaven and it is bringing heaven to us, which is what the work of Christ does for us. As Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. And the challenge that we get flows from this identity. And so the challenge is this. Simply put, consider Jesus. Because you are holy brothers with heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, he's not saying, okay, think about it. He's not, hey, you know what? Maybe think about Jesus. Think about this. This is not an academic exercise. It's not even a philosophical exercise to consider, to think about Jesus. But it's a much deeper sense. 
I think the best example we have of doing this exact thing is from Jesus' mother, Mary, in the Nativity accounts. In Luke 2, we read this. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is the kind of considering that the writer of Hebrews has given us to do about our Savior, Jesus. But to consider what exactly? What should we consider about Jesus? It gives us two things. Specifically, consider how Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of your faith. An apostle. One who is sent in the authority of and with the commissioning of the sender. Jesus was sent by the Father. He was the apostle before the apostles were apostles. The apostles are apostles because they were sent by Christ. Christ was sent by the Father. And then, of course, in John 20, verse 21, he makes it plain. He says this, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are sent by the one who's been sent to us. We also have this truth of high priest. Now, we talked about this last time we were in Hebrews, in Hebrews 2. That was uh, three weeks ago. If you want to go listen to that sermon, catch up a little bit. And we'll look more in detail at this truth of Jesus as our high priest in the weeks to come, especially when we get to Hebrews chapter 7. But brief reminder, the priest is the one who represents the people before God. He's the people's head, the people's stand-in. The high priest in the Old Testament Levitical system was the one who went into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people to make the sacrifice, to offer the sacrifice for intercession. But now we see in Christ, these two offices are being put together. The apostle and the high priest, Jesus is the one who fills both of those offices. Jesus is sent by God with God's authoritative commission. And he is taken from men to represent men as God's perfect man. He is our cosmic reconciler of God and man, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, of our faith. The one who was sent by the Father to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, to reconcile them all to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. Y'all, we have two great needs. We need to hear from God, and we need to get back to God. We need a revelation from him, and we need reconciliation to him. And the author of Hebrews is telling us that we need an apostle. We were never going to go out and seek God. We cannot go find God on our own. We need God to come to us. And we need a high priest. We need one who can bear our sins before God, who can make atonement for our sins, who can bear and make propitiation for our sins, to make us right in our standing before God. We need both the apostle and the high priest. Jesus is exactly that. He was sent with the authority of the Father to reconcile us to the Father. And he is commissioned as the eternal high priest whose work stands for eternity. 
so that we have an immortal and eternal hope and advocate before the throne. This is our calling. This is our challenge. So given that, he dives into deeper. We see first, as we get into verses 2 through 4, we have this greater faithfulness. And this is where the comparison really starts to dive into in more detail. The comparison between Moses and Jesus to show us again that superiority of Jesus in all things. But look at how the author does this. Let me give you an example. Think about the best view you've ever experienced. The best vista, natural view, beauty. It could be a national park, ocean, something like that. Or consider maybe the best meal you've ever eaten. Best food you've ever ate. There's a whole show on Food Network about the best thing I ever ate. We could talk about that for forever, right? Or what's the best music that you've ever heard? Okay, now what if something better comes along? What if a better view or a better meal or a better album is experienced? Does it knock down the first thing? Is the, first, is the original thing less because you've experienced something better than it? No. It goes above and beyond it. Pragmatic example. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles is a great album, right? Now, you can fight me on this if you want. I'll be out in the lobby. Abbey Road is better, right? It does, Abbey Road does not knock down Sgt. Pepper's. But we have just a new category of what greatness can be and what greatness can be achieved. A new level of what can be done, what can be accomplished. This is what the author of Hebrews is doing. With all of his comparisons. Every time that he says Jesus is better. In chapter 1, the author of Hebrews didn't say, you know what, y'all have this big view of angels don't, don't have such a big view of angels. Angels aren't that big. They aren't that impressive. That's not what he says. The author of Hebrews is saying angels are as big and as impressive and as majestic as you think they are. But guess what? Jesus is even better than that. And the same thing here. We are not told that Moses is not as big a deal as y'all think he is. We're not told y'all are making too big a deal out of Moses. You need to calm down with the Moses stuff. We are told that Moses is just as important and significant as you think he is, maybe even more so. But as important and as significant as Moses was, Jesus is more. Remember, Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians being tempted to to shrink back to the old religious system back to Jerusalem, back to the temple and the sacrificial system. Perhaps nostalgia is catching hold of them. That they feel like, you know, it was so much better, which is exactly what God's people did in the wilderness to Moses. Remember when we were in Egypt? Remember how nice that was? Remember when we were slaves? That was nice. It's better than here. And Moses was just, oh, Hebrews, though, is not saying, listen, your memories are distorted. It wasn't that great. Hebrews is saying, yeah, the temple was significant. Jerusalem, at its peak, was significant, was important, absolutely. But Jesus, his glory is infinitely greater. 
The glory and the majesty and the importance of Jesus is infinitely greater than that of Jerusalem or of the temple or of Moses. And he points out specifically, we see this in verse 3, that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses in relation to God's house. And the astonishing reason is this, because Jesus is the builder of the house. And Moses was just part of the house. Verse 3 there again in Hebrews 3, For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Y'all, the point is this. While Moses is part of the house that God is building, Jesus himself is the builder of that house. Therefore, Jesus is Moses' builder. Jesus made Moses. We see that truth in John 1. Everything that was made was made through him. So while Moses was faithful in his calling to stand before Pharaoh, to lead the Hebrews through the wilderness, to deliver the law and the word of God to the people, to even hold up that bronze serpent in the wilderness when God's people had rebelled and the the serpents were coming through and biting everybody. And the bronze serpent was lifted up and said, if you look to the serpent, you will be saved. And Jesus, of course, used that exact image to point to himself. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. For the salvation of God's people. You know, so much more. You can go on and on and on about everything that Moses did, but his faithfulness was as one who is a part of the house. And his faithfulness was imperfect. We read in Exodus 2, of course, Moses killed an Egyptian and ran away. And then we read in Numbers 20. Now this, this needs its, whole, uh, its own sermon. But Moses struck the rock to get water where he was commanded only to speak to it. And sin, and that was the sin that actually kept Moses out of the promised land. But even when Moses was faithful, even when Moses was dealing with rebellion from his siblings, the grumbling of the people, faithfully leading them through the wilderness, his faithfulness was not his own. It was a faithfulness from outside. It was from God. Moses was faithful, but his faithfulness was empowered by God. The faithfulness of Jesus, on the other hand, is a perfect faithfulness. Perfect in both his active and his passive obedience perfect to fulfill the law of God, and perfect to accomplish our redemption in his priestly sacrifice. And his faithfulness is his own. But the faithfulness of Jesus is not something that Jesus clings on to tightly and says, this is mine, I earned it, it's mine, it belongs to me. The faithfulness of Jesus is the faithfulness he gives freely to all of his people. His younger brothers for our benefit. Which brings us to the third point here. A greater title. We get the idea in verses 5 and 6 of a son versus a servant. Moses was a servant in the house of God. But Jesus is the son over the house of God. Now the difference between a servant and a son is the son, by virtue of his inheritance, owns the house is Lord over the house. And he provides for those in the house out of his abundant wealth. 
Y'all, this son-servant contrast is one of these core differences between Christianity and every other faith system, every other religion that you would ever encounter. Y'all, even taken at face value, Muhammad or Buddha or even the Old Testament's prophets, at best, all of them, all they could do is point you the way. They could show you God's over there. This is how you get to him. They could show you this is the way to salvation, however they define salvation. But all they can do is say, there it is, go. Hope, hope you get there. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, Moses was committed to a doctrine to which he, in common with others, was to submit. But Christ, though he put on the form of a servant, is yet master and Lord to whom all ought to be subject. Y'all, the contrast of verses 5 and 6 here in Hebrews 3 is that the Son does not come to just point us the way to the Father. The Son comes to be the way to the Father. The Son comes to bring the Father to us and to bring us to the Father, to make that reconciliation happen. The son doesn't come to say that, you know what, I'm watching this house for a while, and as long as I'm watching it, there's plenty of room. How about you come stay with me? The son comes and says, this is my house, and there is a place for you. You are home. Not not, not a place that we can stay for a while. We are home. It is just as it is his home forever, it is our home forever. And this finally gives us to this last point, which is a greater hope. The last part of verse 6, that we have a real reason to have hope. Jesus is the house builder. Moses was the house steward. Jesus is the son in the house where Moses was a servant. And this is what we discover here in the last part of verse 6. This house that Jesus is building, that we are a part of, it's us. It's you and me. We are the house. Jesus has already brought together heaven and earth in this text, in this, this divine cosmic reconciler as the apostle and the priest. And we see that he brings together all of God's people from the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets, all the way from Adam through Noah, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, David, Solomon, all of the prophets, all the way through up until we get to John the Baptist, even though he's in the New Testament, he's really the last Old Testament prophet. And then all the saints, the apostles, the patriarchs, uh, the the patristic fathers, the the great heroes of our faith, up to like like last week we talked about Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and all of these guys. And each and every one of us, y'all, we are all part of the one household of faith, the one house of God. So in a sense, we really are. We are... We are Jews in the truest sense, because we are the children of Abraham. It's not that they have these Old Testament people who were saved in one way and these New Testament who were saved in another way. No, it all points to Jesus Christ. It all points to the one who is building the house. Moses and me. Moses and you. Moses and us. Same house. This is what 1 Corinthians 3 teaches us. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. But to take it further, it's not that we have temple, 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 temple. First Peter 2 gives us, so you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a one singular spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying as Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Y'all, Jesus is building a house. You and I are that house. If we belong to Christ, if we have been reconciled by his atoning blood, by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we are made right with God. We are now part of this house. You know, this is what the Apostles' Creed teaches. When we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, this is that. The unity of all of God's people from the first, from Adam, all the way to the last believer who comes to Christ before his return, whenever that is. The hope we are holding fast to is that we are surely in this house and part of this house. The hope is not that, you know what, maybe one day if I'm good enough, if I work hard enough, if I'm spiritual enough, if I'm pious enough, maybe I'll get to be part of that house. No. The hope is that we surely are part of this house. We don't have to earn our way into it. Our faithfulness doesn't get us there. We are brought in purely by the grace of God through the apostolic and the priestly work of Jesus Christ. Y'all, Moses could bring the law from God to the people. Moses could point the way, probably better than anyone else, but only Jesus can come and get us and bring us back to God and bring us into the house. This is the truth of the passage. This is the truth that we see here. Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses can point the way. There's a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers that can point you the way, but all I can do, all Adam can do, all, all we can do is point you towards Jesus because Jesus is the one who is the way. He's the one who brings us in. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray this morning that we would see the great truth of the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is better than being shown the way to go. Jesus is better than being told this is how you get home because Jesus is our home. Jesus is our way. Jesus is the one that brings us in because he is our big brother. He claims us as his family because he is our High priest, he makes it possible for us to come in to be part of the household of God, eternally secure, faithful. We pray, Lord, that we would be a transformed people because of this great truth this morning. We would see Christ and know Christ and have our comfort and assurance in Christ. Pray this in his name for his sake. Amen.